Well, good morning, Wayside. Well, if you would, please go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 5 uh, as we continue our way through this book. Um, but before we dive in, I'd, I'd love just to take a moment uh, to pray once again, uh, because I, I personally, I, I cover your prayers, and I thank everyone on the pastoral team, all the pastors and leaders of this church. Uh, we, we just want to let you know that we don't take your prayers for granted. Uh, we feel the strength of them. And, and I'm reminded every time I preach, it's, it's a humble, humbling reminder uh, that I, I just don't have what it takes to change hearts. Um, I just don't have that kind of power. Uh, but while I don't have that type of power, God does. He does. And we know according to Hebrews 4.12 that the word of the Lord is alive and it's active. And when his word goes out, it does not come back void. We know that which means that, that God wants to produce something in our hearts through Judges chapter 5 this morning. But only the Spirit of God can enable the type of change that our hearts need. And so we are utterly dependent upon Him. Amen? Yeah. And so I'd love for you just to take a moment, uh, just silently, wherever you're at, whether you're here in person or, or whether you're at home, and just pray, say, God, would you speak to me? through your word this morning. So just ask him that silently. And then if you would, would you pray for me? Just pray that God would speak clearly through me. Well, God, we're here and we want... We want to know you more. We want you to direct us. So would you have your way? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, the first thing you should notice um, as you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 5 is that the writing style has completely changed. Uh, We go from narrative in chapter 4 to poetry in chapter 5. And what's interesting about Judges chapter 5 is that it's basically the same story as Judges chapter 4. And so this should sound really familiar if you were here last week. Uh, If it doesn't, you need to ask for forgiveness from the Lord um, because you weren't listening. Um, But the only difference, the only difference is this. Uh, Chapter 4 is written from the perspective of a historian and chapter 5 is written from the perspective of a poet, because Judges 5 is a song. I'm not going to sing it today, uh, but Judges 5 is meant to be sung. It's music, it's poetry. And really what poetry is, is, is it's information that is lit up with emotion, because much of life is not just about what happens, but about how we feel when it happens, which is why we love music so much, because music speaks to our soul. It, it speaks to our heart. And that's what, that's what Deborah is doing right here. She doesn't want to just tell you what has happened. She wants you to feel what has, what has happened. So she sings. And Deborah and God's people, what they're doing is they're celebrating in Judges chapter 5 for the victory that they experienced in Judges chapter 4. And they're celebrating much like we do today through song. Judges 5 is a massive song of praise. We see in the very beginning of our text, it says this. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord, 
Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. And so we see here, after God uses Deborah and Barak to deliver God's people from a formidable foe in chapter 4, they respond by singing this gospel duet in a beautiful praise song. And that's what praise is. Praise is a response. When you witness the hand of God moving, it is natural to praise to worship. I remember one of my pastors back in College Station, um, him and his wife, uh, I can hear some whooping. I didn't know if that was a, a dog. Or, okay, good. Um, I remember one of my pastors back in College Station, uh, him and his wife, they used to be missionaries uh, in China. And they were, they were ministering to these Chinese college girls. And this one night, they decided that they were going to take these girls and they took them to a, a restaurant um, to eat dinner. And at dinner, they were once again uh, sharing the gospel and going over the gospel with these girls. And this one girl, you could tell that things were starting to click because she was asking all sorts of questions. And once she began to grasp the gospel, once she began to grasp the grace of God, And the fact that Christ had lavished his love on her despite her sin. They said that she literally stood up in the middle of this public restaurant in an atheistic country. And she began to sing out loud of this gracious God she now knew named Jesus. And everyone just kind of was shocked and they paused as they watched her. But when this college girl in China began to understand the implications of the gospel... She couldn't help but sing about it. And she naturally praised God in the presence of the people. And that's what's going on here in this passage. Deborah and Barak have witnessed the hand of God. They've experienced deliverance and salvation. And so they naturally and rightfully praise God in the presence of the people. Now, there's a lot I could say about praise. Um, I could spend the entire Uh, morning, this entire sermon, just breaking down praise in the Hebrew. I actually just taught a little bit about this, uh, this past Sunday in our singles ministry at Momentum. Um, And so there's a lot on my mind, uh, but I just want to mention just a few things briefly. Okay, if you study Hebrew praise, okay, especially in the Psalms, you're going to notice some unique characteristics about praise. Um, I had this professor in seminary named Dr. Ronald Allen, Uh, He's got a great book called, And I Will Praise Him, if you want to get that and dive deeper into this. But he taught us, he says, when it comes to Hebrew praise, you're going to notice three unique qualities in the scriptures. The first is this, Hebrew praise always involved sound. It always involves sound. If you study praise in the Psalms, you'll notice that there is no such thing as silent praise. You couldn't be quiet and praise God at the same time because Hebrew praise always involved sound. The second thing, the second unique quality about Hebrew praise is that it not only involved sound, but Hebrew praise was always public. Praise in the Hebrew scriptures um, always involved others. It was always done in community. You could not praise God privately. You can worship God privately, but you could not praise him privately. Now, there's a time for silence. 
uh, there's a time uh, for private prayer. We, we see that all throughout the scriptures. Okay, in Matthew chapter 6, you got these Pharisees who are praying in public and they're hoping that because of their lofty words that people will be impressed by them. And Jesus says, quit being a hypocrite, but instead go into your closet, pray to your father in secret and what is done in secret, your father will reward. There's a time for private prayer. And there's also a time for silence. If you've ever read the book of, Bo- of Job, um, his friends did best when they stopped talking <laughs> and stopped offering advice to their friend who is suffering. They did best when they just sat next to him in silence. We see in Psalm 131 and Psalm 46 that there's a place for silence. At times, the best thing that you and I can do is to sit in silence before our God and once again remind ourselves, God, I know you're still God. I still trust you. You're going to work this for good. Silence can be a beautiful display of trust. There's a time for God's people to be silent. But praise is not one of those times because praise in the scriptures always involves sound. It was always loud. It was vocal. And it was always done in the presence of the people. And so the question is why? Like why does praise have to be done in public? Well, let's get one thing straight. It's not because God needs our praise. Let's be clear about that. God does not need our praise. God is not sitting up in the heavens, wrestling with insecurity, hoping that his people will praise him. That's not the God of the Bible. We see this clearly in Acts 17, verses 24 through 25. It says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What we see in the scriptures is that God is completely satisfied within the triune Godhead. He has existed for all eternity, and he didn't create just because he was bored. Our God created because he's a giver in his very nature. So our God does not need our praise. He's perfectly content. The reason that God has designed praise to be vocal and public is because when the people praise God, the community benefits. That's point number three. The reason why God designed praise to be loud and public is because when the people do so, they'll be encouraged. They'll be encouraged to remind us once again of who God is and why we should have hope because when the people praise God, the community benefits. And another reason we praise publicly is because praise is meant to be a testimony to others. It's meant to be a testimony to others. Listen, church, I think this is super relevant to us right now. Uh, There's a lot going on right now. I don't think I need to tell you that. Um, there's a lot to gripe about. And there are a bunch of Christians right now who honestly just spend their days complaining and grumbling. And church, that is not a good witness of our faith. There's too much grumbling right now. Now listen, we need to voice our concerns. We need to to lament. I'm not encouraging everybody to live in this superficial positivity bubble. That's not at all what I'm saying. 
What I am saying is Christians, more than any other type of people in the world, have great reason to praise God. Because regardless of what is going on circumstantially, we know what Christ has done. We know what Christ is presently doing. And we know what Christ is going to one day do. And we need to boldly declare that it should be our testimony. Now, I realize like life is, is hard for a lot of you right now. Like some of you are in a really tough season. And what I'm not doing, I'm not telling you to act like you're not. The world is broken. And to be frank, it just stinks sometimes. Following Jesus is not easy. It's hard. But if we only praise God when things are going well, what does that say about our faith? But if instead we declare... Whether the Lord gives or whether the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Does that not magnify our faith? Does that not say something different about our God? And listen, I'll be honest, I'm speaking to myself now as well. I have a tendency, like a lot of you, my wife knows this and people close to me know this, where I can easily become cynical if things aren't going my way. I am prone to complain and gripe, just like a lot of you. And if I'm not careful, I can suck the joy out of people around me. And I've got to be careful about that. Because as a believer in Christ, I am called first and foremost to praise God. Because he's done some good things in my life. And if I'm right about the scriptures, things are about to get a whole lot better because Jesus is coming back. Church is God's people who know of his grace and believe in his promises, praise should be one of the fundamental marks of our lives. Now, I realize these are peculiar times, which means now more than ever, we need to actively cultivate habits of praise in our lives so that we can encourage one another and give hope to a really hopeless world. And that's what Deborah is doing here in chapter five. She is praising God It is loud, it is vocal, and it's public. And the community is benefiting. Now, there's a a bunch of ways we could break up this passage. I'm not gonna read uh, every verse, but what I'm gonna do is I'm going to focus on four main themes that I see in this passage. Uh, I think Deborah is praising God specifically in four main ways. There are four big shouts of praise in this passage, in my opinion. The first is this. Deborah praises the Lord for his past faithfulness. That's verses one through 12, and that's point number one. What we see in these verses is Deborah and Barak, they've gathered God's people and they sing out loud and they are encouraging the people to recount what God has done and then praise him for it. They start out in verses two and three, where they praise God for the unity that has occurred, that allowed an army to be raised. They recount the leaders and volunteers who stepped up in order to heed the call of battle. Uh, Their cooperation between these leaders and these volunteers, it led to their success. In verse five, if you look there, Deborah recalls Mount Sinai, where God established his covenant with Israel as his special people, where he promised that he would go before them if they would just abide by his law. Look at how she describes God in verse four. She says, Lord, when you went out, when you marched from the field, she's reminding the people that they were not fighting alone, 
on the battlefield. Just as God had promised, as God's people advanced down that mountain, it was God himself who went before them. And she ties together how this same covenantal God who had given them victory in the past is the same God who gives them victory in the present. He's a faithful God, church. True to his word, always keeping his promises. Uh, Every once in a while, um, I'll let my daughters uh, play games on my phone. And, And this one time... Um, I told my, my daughter Avery that she could play a game on my phone, but then I, I changed my mind because I'm sure I had a good reason. And I told her, never mind, you can't. Uh, my daughter did not approve of my decision. Um, she got very, very angry, started wailing, and she screamed out. She said, Daddy, God always keeps his promises, and so you need to keep yours. <laughs> um, I let her play the dang game, okay? Like, yeah, because she's right, isn't she? <laughs> Our God always keeps his promises, amen? And that's why you and I have hope, church. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. If our God promises something, he does it because he's trustworthy. That's why we don't have to doubt our salvation. If God said he's gonna save you, he's gonna save you. That's Romans ten nine. It says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, not you might be. Whatever your situation is, you can have faith that if you believe in Jesus, he's going to work it out for good. Well, how do I know that? Well, because he promises us that in Romans eight twenty eight. He's a faithful God, church. And Deborah reminds the people of this. And she also reminds them in verses six and seven, of how desperate of a situation they're in before God intervened. Uh, she talks about how barren the highways were. Everyone was scared to travel because of the enemy. And it should remind us, church, uh, may we never forget, for those of us that believe in Jesus, may we never forget how desperate of a situation we were in before Christ intervened in our lives. We were a lost, broken hopeless, hell-bound people before God intervened. We deserve death because of our sin, but he granted us life because of his grace. Let's not forget that, ever. You see, the nation of Israel often forgot the kindness that God had shown them, which led to all sorts of issues. They often acted like a bunch of ungrateful and undisciplined children. And when children aren't acting right, you got to bring in mom. So God raised up Deborah. (laughs) That's verse 7. And it's interesting. uh, God referred to Deborah as a prophetess and a judge in chapter 4. But in chapter 5, verse 7, as she talks about herself, she preferred the title mother. That's how she viewed herself. Yes, she was a prophetess. Yes, she was a judge. Yes, she was a great leader, but first and foremost, she was mom. And she calls herself a mother in Israel. The wayward Jews were were her children, and she, like a good mom, counseled her children back to God. That was her heart. Uh, Deborah truly is an amazing judge. My daughters love reading about Deborah. She is unique among the judges because rather than leading through a sheer physical might, she led through counseling, through wisdom, through integrity, 
and through delegation. She not only rescues God's people, but she loves them as a mother loves her children. That's what made her such a great leader. She loved those she led. And I love how in in verses 10 through 12, she calls all classes of society to sing and praise God for what he has done. She says, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who travel on the road, sing. In other words, whether you are driving a Tesla or whether you are taking the bus, come see the greatness of the Lord and praise him for it. In verses 1 through 12, Deborah praises God for his past faithfulness. That's the first big shout of praise. And the second big shout is in verses 13 through 18 where Deborah praises the Lord for willing volunteers. That's point number two. You'll notice as you read these verses that Deborah praises God for those who volunteered themselves willingly for the Lord's service as they joined the fight against the enemy. But you'll also notice as you read those verses that not everyone participated. Not everyone joined the fight. She mentions Five tribes of people favorably who answered the call to fight, namely Ephraim, Benjamin, Western Manasseh, or Machir, Naphtali, and Zebulun. And then she mentions four tribes of people unfavorably because they didn't join their countrymen, which were the tribes of Reuben, the Gileadites, or Gad, Dan, and Asher. And she's bold. She kind of calls them out here. She's like, where were y'all? We called. Why didn't you answer? It reminded me in John Eldred's book, uh, Wild at Heart. Um, If you've never read it, he talks about this, the famous uh, D-Day in World War II, where the allies uh, hit the beach of Normandy in order to cut off Adolf Hitler's reinforcements. And Eldred says this about that day. He says, it was a moment of unparalleled bravery and cowardice. For not every trooper played the man that fateful night. Sure, they jumped, but afterward, many hid. He talks about one group in particular who took cowardice to a new level. He mentions one private who said he and his squad started hearing all kinds of noise and singing uh, coming from a nearby farmhouse. And so he and his men, they, they snuck up on the barn, and to their unbelievable surprise, they found American paratroopers from different divisions drinking liquor and they were drunker than a bunch of hillbillies, quote. Unbelievable cowardice. While these men, while their brothers and friends were laying down their lives on the beach, they snuck off to a barn and they drank the night away. Eldridge goes on to say, he says, these men knew they were at war, yet they refused to act like it. They lived in a dangerous denial, a denial that not only endangered them, but countless others who depended on them to do their part. Church, one thing scripture is very clear about is this. Life is war. It's war. It's a war between the kingdom of darkness led by Satan, the world and the flesh, and the kingdom of light led by Jesus and his church. There are really only two decisions in life, obedience or disobedience. You are either seeking after the Lord in obedience or you are running away from the Lord in disobedience. There is no middle ground. As I was studying this passage the other day, I felt like the Lord was stern in my soul saying, Jason, wake up. 
Wake up. There's a battle going on. Join the fight. Join the fight. You see, church, through the cross of Christ, Jesus declared war on the forces of darkness. In the spirit of God, even as we speak, he is taking ground. He's convicting sinners of their sin. He's taking people out of darkness and he's putting them into light. And our God has rung forth the battle cry. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, go forth and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I've commanded. It was Jesus who declared, he said, the harvest church is ripe. It's ripe for the taking, but the workers are few. The workers are few. I preached over 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 a few months ago. And in that passage, it talks about how each of us in the body of Christ, we've been uniquely gifted by God for his glory in order to bless others. Not just some of us, not just a few of us, but all of us. Every single one of us has been gifted by the Spirit for the work of ministry. But the sad reality is typically in most churches, 20% of the people are doing 100% of the ministry. That's what's normal in America. But according to God, 100% of the people have been equipped for 100% of the ministry. Meaning if you are a follower of Christ, God has called you and he has equipped you for ministry. The question isn't, has God called me to serve Christ, but rather, will you answer the call and serve him? Will you join him in his mission? Our God is searching for men and women who will boldly follow him into battle, those who will courageously use their gift and answer their call so that God may strongly equip them for the work that he's called them for. I think for some of you, I don't know who I'm talking to, but I think for some of you, God has uh, called you boldly to step out and serve him in a very specific way. And he's waiting for you to cry out like the prophet Isaiah. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Send me. Um, I know as a pastor here at Wayside and all the other pastors would agree, um, we are incredibly grateful that so many of you have answered the call. You are actively engaged in the battle. You seek to be salt and light in a dark world. You're making disciples and we praise God for you. Keep going, keep going. We need you. These are hard times. We gotta do this together. We gotta stick together. And Deborah does the same thing here. She praises God for those who rose to the challenge and answered the call. She praises God for willing Volunteers in verses 13 through 18. And then the third big shout of praise in this passage comes from verses 19 through 23, where Deborah praises God for battle victory. In verse 19, she recounts and praises God once again for the kings and volunteers who joined the fight against the kings of Canaan near the waters of Megiddo. Remember, as as Roger talked about last week, uh, this was not supposed to have even been a fight I mean, the Canaanite kings, they'd come together, they'd united their forces along with 900 iron chariots, which was like the top of the line weaponry of the day. Uh, and they would have been expected to just slice through this army that, that Deborah and Barak had raised. They didn't even have any weapons. The battle plan made no sense. It spelled disaster. But as you and I know, when God is on your side, 
nothing is impossible. When it comes to battle, God only knows one thing, and that's victory. That's victory. We see in verses 20 through 22, as Roger talked about last week, that God caused it to rain in the valley where this Canaanite army was camped, causing the river to flood, which made these top-of-the-line chariots useless. And God's people easily swept in and they slaughtered them. You see, if you're on God's side, you cannot lose, which means the opposite is true as well. If you are not on God's side, you cannot win. We see this in verse 23. It says, the angel of the Lord said, curse Miraz and utterly curse its inhabitants. Uh, we don't know much about Miraz uh, or the inhabitants of Miraz. Uh, apparently, uh, it was a settlement in northern Palestine that did not send aid when Deborah and Barak called on them for it. Miraz means shirker, which is someone who evades work, responsibility, and duty. And the reason... Uh, why we don't know much about them is probably because God cursed them. You see, blessing comes when we fight on God's side, but cursing comes when we stay home and refuse to engage. There is no middle ground, church. We are either on God's side or we are against him. But for those of us who are on God's side, victory is the only outcome. It's the only option for those who believe in Christ. Now, let me back up uh, because some of you are sitting here listening. You're like, well, pastor, um, I believe in Jesus and I don't feel like I have much victory right now. In fact, I feel the complete opposite is true. I feel defeated and I feel like a failure. And there's a lot that I could say about that, but I got to keep this brief because I got to wrap up this sermon. <laughs> um, for some of you, you may feel like a failure because you are living in sin. You're living in sin. As a Christian, you will never feel at peace with God if you keep on sinning. It will wreck your life and it will steal your joy. And if that's you right now, let me tell you this. There's grace for you. God loves you. But you need to repent. Quit sinning and seek God. We all sin. Every single one of us. We live in a broken world and these are broken bodies that we live in. You are going to mess up from time to time. But as believers in Christ, if we do sin, we are called to confess our sin and pursue repentance. That's 1 John 1, 9. If you're doing that, good. Keep going. Keep going. If you're not doing that, then brother or sister... Take your faith seriously and get back in the fight because God is calling you into battle. Will you answer the call and wage war on your sin? He'll come alongside you if you will, but we're called to pursue righteousness. For others of you, you feel defeated not because of sin issues, uh, but because of life issues that you really don't have much control over. Uh, for some, like you... You're in a hard season, whether that be health issues or financial issues, mental health issues, uh, relational issues, persecution. I mean, the list goes on and on. And if that's you, let me first say this. As one of your pastors, um, 
my heart breaks for you. I'm sorry to hear that you're struggling right now. But what I do know is that you're not alone and that your suffering is not in vain. And God promises to go before you, to fight with you, and he promises us that victory is on the horizon. Victory's coming, church. It's coming. So just take another step today. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Just focus on today for it has enough troubles of its own. Just focus on today. Take another step. God sees you. I love the second part of verse 21 where it says, oh, my soul, march on with strength. That's a coffee mug verse right there. You don't have to be strong, church. God will be strong for you. Just keep marching. One day at a time, trust him. He's gonna accomplish the work that he started on in you. Victory is on the horizon. And Deborah praises God for that victory. She praises God for that victory. And so should we because it's coming. And the last shout of praise in our passage comes from verses 24 through 31 where Deborah praises the Lord for courageous leaders. Uh, Specifically, uh, in these verses, Deborah is praising God for Jael, whom Pastor Roger talked about last week. I'm telling you, church, these women, Deborah uh, and Jael, they're no joke, okay? Um, Remember, uh, Deborah's name uh, means honeybee. And then Jael's name means wild mountain goat. I mean, it kind of uh, reminds me of like a Marvel movie, you know, like the honeybee and the wild mountain goat, okay? Um, like don't mess with these women. Uh, but if you'll remember from last week, Roger talked about uh, how after the Canaanite army and their 900 chariots uh, get whooped, uh, their courageous leader, Sisera, uh, abandons his army, which tells you what type of leader he is, and he flees to hide which leads him to Jael's tent. And so I'll summarize, he, he comes up to Jael and he's like, yo, Jael, uh, I'm a coward. Can I hide in your tent? And she's like, she's like, yeah, no, no problem. I got you, sweetheart. Wink, wink. Okay. Um, and then he tells her, he says, hey, I'm thirsty. Can I have some water? And she says, hey, let me do you one more. She says, I got some milk. And she hooks him up with some milk, which made him real sleepy. And he got all sorts of comfortable uh, that he decided to take a nap. And then homegirl JL then proceeds to take out a, a tent stake. She grabs a hammer and she drives that bad boy right through his temple. Okay, like it's, it's hardcore, right? If you're married to a JL, keep one eye open, okay? Um, <laughs> but a lot of people, man, they, they think the Bible's boring. I'm like, well, you haven't read Judges, okay? Like, uh, right, but what Deborah does here, okay, what Deborah does is she praises God uh, for JL's boldness. Why? Because this was war. And Jael refused to stand by neutrally, but instead she sided with God's people. And then we find out in verses 28 through 30 that Jael is courageously standing in the gap, not just for Israel, but for all the young girls who would have been captured and abused by Sisera. We know this because in verses 28 through 30, we see this commander's mom is pictured looking out a window and she's wondering why her son hasn't come home yet. And she logically assumes in verse 30 that the reason he was delayed was perhaps because they had defeated the Jews and they were now mistreating the Jewish women where she says two maidens for every warrior and dividing the spoils. In Hebrew, the word maiden is best translated girl slave. This was this guy's MO 
So Sarah loved objectifying women and making them his slaves after battle. That's the type of guy he was. One commentator says this. He says, the great irony of this story is the man who used women as objects is killed by a woman's object, a tent peg. God used Jael courageously to accomplish his justice. And Deborah praises God for that. Well, there's a lot here. We covered a lot. It's hard for me just to pick one application from this passage because there's so much. And there's so much that I left out. But I love Tim Keller's summary of Judges chapter 5. So let me read it um, as we close. He says this. Judges chapter 5 teaches God's people to see God's hand behind all things. We are to celebrate that reality. Our unique stories are not random history. They are theological in nature. We should view history theologically. It's his story. This keeps us from over-honoring ourselves and despairing too much in hard times. God is sovereign. One primary way we keep peace is by continuing to praise God in all things for what he has done, for what he is doing, and for what he will do. I love that summary. Deborah's song of praise ends in verse 31, where she says, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. Which should remind us that there's a day coming, church, when a trumpet is going to sound and the skies will burst forth and the Son of Man will come riding on the clouds with great power and great glory, and he will put his enemies under his feet, and he will wipe away every tear, he will take away every pain, and there will be peace forevermore. We have much to praise God for, amen? Amen. May we be a people who would be known for our public, for our loud, and our vocal praise. Let's pray. Father God, I I was convicted as I went through this passage that I don't think I've done a good job of praising you lately. I've been griping. And I know a lot of people resonate with me. God, may we be a people not known for our grumbling, but people who are known for their praise, whether things go well or whether things are hard, because we know that good times are coming for God's people because you're a good God who is true to his promises. You are a covenant-keeping God, and we praise you for that. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.